Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. This is the Forum in Inglewood, California, the site of the 8th Annual Major Indoor Soccer League All-Star Game. The greatest players in indoor soccer meet next. For me, being this game is a translation. How my team and myself is playing this season. I'm real happy to be here because I represent my players in Dallas, and I hope they'll have a great game. Hi, these are the kind of games I look forward to, meeting guys like Zungol and uh, Bronco. You know, I, it's a challenge to myself and to a lot of players uh, uh, to see these kind of guys come at you at, uh, and fire balls at 40, 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. But uh, it's a chance for me to show my skills and hopefully you can stop them. And uh, I think it'll be the year of the East. The reason I like to play in the MSL All-Star game is to play with my good friend Steve Jungle. I'm happy to be here in All-Star game, my seventh, and I'm enjoying to share the moment with the crowd and my old teammates. ESPN and Bud Sports present the 1987 Major Indoor Soccer League All-Star Game. in the East meet the best in the West. The All-Star Game is being brought to you by Budweiser, the genuine article. Beachwood age for that clean, crisp taste that makes Budweiser the king of beers. For all you do, this Bud's for you. By Metropolitan Life and Affiliated Companies. Get met. It pays. And by the 1987 German-engineered Volkswagen in your Volkswagen dealer. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello, hello. How are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, as you know by now. This is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports, which you hopefully know by now. Thank you for finding us. Appreciated greatly. And welcome back to the festivities as we follow the bouncing red rocket ball on the green astroturf of the major indoor soccer league from the late 70s through the 1980s and the very early part of the 1990s, the first original version of MISL soccer. And uh, we are pleased to have back on our microphones Tim O'Brien, who uh, is a repeat guest from earlier episodes that you just might have missed, uh, in particular, number 31, uh, where we talk about uh, his co-writing of the book, Make This Town Big, which is the excellent story of the Wichita Wings of the MISL. And uh, episode number 151, uh, which he helped inspire, uh, called God Save the Wings, which was the discussion about the documentary film that the book begot or begat. And Tim is back after a long absence, uh, and luckily so for us, 
to come back and uh, discuss his new project. And again, circling around the great MISL. It is a uh, it's a new series of articles that uh, just launched and that you and myself can enjoy for free, at least for the time being. And uh, it is uh, found uh, at this uh, location. It's MISL 1980s1980s, MISL1980s.substack.com. And Tim is rolling out the stories. He's been spending the last number of years doing interviews and having conversations with various people and uh, stories related to the great major indoor soccer league and, and lots of names to be dropped in this conversation coming up in just a bit. Uh, lots of memories uh, to be circled around and um, many, many um, good, fuzzy, warm, uh, especially you know hot winter nights memories uh, to be had in this conversation and in this series. And um, we uh, look forward to uh, bringing it to you in a few moments time. But uh, again, I highly recommend um, uh, the book, Make This Town Big. We'll have a link to it again on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 336. We'll also have a link to the Substack as well. And um, you can also, by the way, find a convenient link to uh, the movie, which is uh, now, I think, available uh, on uh, Amazon Prime and a couple of other places. Uh, and that's uh, also the website there is uh, godsavethewings.com. So all that kind of stuff uh, is there for you to enjoy and uh, revel in. And to hopefully get you set for this chat. Let's uh, set it up a little bit further, shall we? Uh, the clip uh, kind of uh, gives you a little bit of a hint of of sort of where we're headed. That clip was from ESPN back in 1987. That was uh, one of the years where ESPN was bringing you MISL games, uh, games of the week. I think they had about, I don't know, 15 to 18 games uh, that season. Uh, longtime uh Fans of the MISL uh, in the original first years may remember the uh, USA Cable Network with Al Troutwig and Kyle Rowe Jr. calling all of the action uh, being sort of the uh, earliest uh, place for national cable broadcasts of MISL games. But that was the uh, all-star game that was in the fabulous forum, still around, but not uh, for sports anymore. Uh, and that was uh, what I think the date was specifically February the 11th of 1987, perhaps maybe one of the best, if not the best, all-star games ever played in the MISL, the Eastern Division, uh, beating the Western Division by a 6-5 to five score in sudden death overtime. And um, just uh, a great name. It's a tattoo you heard in that uh, setup. Uh, Tim, uh, Tino Letteri, uh was uh, the second voice you heard in that. Bronco Segoda. Uh, was the third voice and the great lord of all indoors, Steve Jungle, uh, was the uh, final player in that little uh, that little setup. And of course, the uh, irrepressible and unmistakable dulcet tones of J.P. Delacamera, our episode number sixty six guest, uh, calling the action that uh, that game uh, alongside. Although you didn't hear his uh, voice, Seamus Mallon, the longtime. Um, a color commentator for Cosmos games, you remember those, as well as MISL games on ESPN. So many memories right there, but uh, that sets the tone uh, for our conversation. So let's get to it, shall we? Uh, it is uh, with our pal Tim O'Brien. We're 
great to, it's a really great to have him back. And let's get into uh, the origin story of this uh, Substack series devoted to the various uh, hijinks around the MISL. Here's our conversation we had just a few weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you give our um, our esteemed audience a bit of a uh, uh, an update uh, since your last appearance here on this show back in 2017? Um, you know, wh- where are you? Are you still in the Wichita area? And maybe we can then sort of skate into sort of the origin story of your of your original interest in the MISL in the first place, which obviously uh, from past conversations centered around those crazy wings. Absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, uh, Make This Town Big, the story of Roy Turner and the Wichita Wings was um, is still uh, – it's available on Amazon. A, and, a uh, fun book and one, one of the best reads about the MISL. Frankly, there aren't too many of those, but this is really – this is, tells two stories in one, really. It's the Wings story, but also a lot about what this MISL thing was all about at that time. So, sorry, I didn't mean to digress, but it's, a, it's, it's an uh, imploring the audience to get this book because it's great. Yeah, it, it was a, a labor of love. It it was, um, and we decided to use the the uh, sort of oral history format when we wrote the book. Um, Mike Romalis and I were the authors, and um, you know because we wanted to. You know, there's so many great stories from all these participants that we interviewed, and I had just at the time, I had just read. Um, those these guys have all the fun the espn um book i i may have butchered the title just something along those lines and um it used that oral history format where it just lets the different figures and from espn's history talk and so we decided you know this would be a great format for the wings book um because we had gazillion interviews um with all these former you know players and coaches and staff and media and all that but uh so yeah, but you actually we almost sold a thousand copies of this book about indoor soccer in Wichita in the 1980s, which is a some sort of miracle that you know I, I really did not expect that uh, to happen because it's such a niche thing, um, and um, and that led into because um, then we're like, well, you know, we really want people to see what this looks like. And so we hooked up with Adam Knapp and Kenny Lynn, and we're later joined by Tori Dethridge, another producer, and we made God Save the Wings, the documentary film about um, the Wichita Wings. And um, the uh, that film is now available um, on uh, Amazon Pro- on Prime Video. Uh, you can rent it or purchase it on Prime. And uh, it's only like $2.99 to rent, so it's a pretty cheap price um it's definitely worth uh two dollars and 99 cents uh for that hour and a half and um you can also we actually also are selling dvds and blu-rays on godsavethewings.com so uh, we've had a lot of um great uh, uh sales so far for both those things so um it's been it's been a great experience and uh and it was you know it took us about it was a, uh, you know, three-year process of making the film, which is, which we learned as we went to film festivals all over the world. Uh, we learned that um, we'd run into fil- filmmakers that were like, "Oh, my, my film took eight years." <laughs> so we actually 
um made it quickly for the in the documentary film community but um so yeah it's been a real we we went to berlin and uh spain and denmark and um all over the united states and um the film has won awards at three different festivals um best documentary audience awards as well so it's been a great a great journey well before we get into your new project why don't you also um Remind us, and by the way, uh, episodes number 31 uh, and episode uh, number 151, uh, for those uh, uh, folks who are relatively new to the show, check both of those out because uh, that was our first conversation with Tim, uh, that first episode uh, 31, and then the uh, the Wings movie uh, with Adam and Mike Romalis um, from 2020. Check both of those out because you'll uh, sort of get the fuller picture of this Wings story. But for those who... Uh, either don't remember or haven't listened to those yet. Um, give our audience a bit of a background on your learning of your uh, connection to this Wings franchise. What, when, how, and maybe more importantly, why? So if you were a child <clears throat> growing up in the 1980s in Wichita, Kansas, um, you almost certainly or a wings fan uh, or at least at least you know you knew who the wings were and you you know maybe went to a game or two or saw a game or you know maybe had a shirt so this was it was a huge huge deal in wichita in the 80s and um so i i was in elementary school during the wings sort of heyday in the in the early mid 80s and um so I went to a, you know a handful of games. I watched it on TV. I had an Eric Rasmussen jersey. I wouldn't say I was really a super fan, but I was definitely a fan, and I played soccer probably because of the Wings, really. Um, and so um, that brought me to the Wings, just like many kids uh, in Wichita. But you know, as an adult, um, I became I was became friends with um, a guy named Mike Romalis who had really kind of the wings had really been the sort of the defining thing of his childhood. And, um, he was a, a, an obsessive collector of all things wings and it still is. And so, um, we became friends, uh, over in high school actually. And then, and in college at university of Kansas, we went there together and, um, I ended up, um, at one point, uh, he was my roommate and, and, in, in adulthood and, he would, you know, have this collection of of Wings DVDs that he had, you know, he had originally got them, you know, a video, a VHS tapes, and then he had converted them to the DVDs, and he had a massive collection of these games. And so we'd occasionally watch one and, you know, sort of speculate about um, what, what if the Wings came back? And then in 2011, um, after the Wings had been defunct since uh, 2001, um the uh a very rich man here in wichita wink hartman who is an oil man maybe a billionaire or almost a billionaire he's a hundred millionaire we'll call him um he decided to um bring the wings back and um so i got into it in a way that could have mike got into it when he was a kid i really started getting into this new version of the wings and and then, you know, made developed relationships with um, some of the people, sort of other fans, and then, you know, met Roy Turner, and then 
you know, Mike and I were like, why don't we just write a book about this? Actually, we had a friend who suggested this. And so we set up a meeting with Roy Turner, the great uh, coach and um, of the wings. Also, he was a president of the wings after uh, he was the coach. And of course, he had been a the Iron Man of the NASL and the Dallas Tornado back in the 70s. And so um, <clears throat> that process, um, you know, let us, you know, through Roy, we were able to get access to all these different players and different figures and from Wings history. And there was this huge um, desire amongst both the players and the people involved with the team and the fans to see this history remembered. Um, and, you know, we had people, we had a book launch party um, in Wichita and there were uh, hundreds of people there. And it was, you know, we brought in, uh, a bunch of the former players, Chico Borja, Andy Chapman, Kim Runfed, Kevin Cooley, um, Victor Moreland, um, missing a couple, but Terry Nickel. And um, it just, uh, it was, it was an enormous event. And so that um, then led to the movie and the same thing happened with the movie where this, you know, the fan base funded our film, which was a, you know, we, it was not a cheap, process because we flew to Denmark, we flew to England, we went to various places in the United States, you know, interviewing different people. And, you know, we have animation in God Save the Wings and it's not cheap. Uh, and so the whole process, you know, it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, all funded by Wings fans. Um, they funded this entire project and because they wanted to see this history kept alive. And so, um, I kind of accidentally fell into all this um, just from being a casual fan as a kid to then, you know, <laughs> becoming one of the uh, what I what they call um, uh, punish uh, professional underground network of indoor soccer historians. I believe is the uh, the acronym they like to use uh, Rich Pichette and uh um, Alan Belthrop and Brian Holland, who are all super fans, along with Mike Romalis of the MISL. So describe to me the why the Wichita fan base sort of rallied around both these two projects. And I, I'm guessing a, a whole lot of it had to do with the fact that this was, for all intents and purposes, aside from minor league hockey or minor league baseball and various forms of less than indoor football and stuff. This was literally major league uh, for the first time for this city in the middle of Kansas. No. Yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, um, you know, the, the, the MISL for those who don't know was a big deal in the 1980s and you had NFL, teams that own franchises you had the lasers owned by jerry bus who owned the lakers it was a um you know large markets new york la dallas chicago um and so this was on espn on the usa network um at various times so this was a big deal and then you know wichita is is in this league and you know when we interviewed the owners um in particular, uh, Bill Oliver, who um, just passed away, actually, a former owner of the team. You know, he was like, you know, I didn't want to own a, a team that played against 
you know, Dubuque and nothing against Dubuque or, you know, you know, uh, Tulsa or whatever. He, he wanted to play against um, New York and L.A. He wanted to see Wichita's name um, on that same marquee as those um, big cities. And this was Wichita's only chance really in any form to compete on the same level as these major cities. And so because of that and because of the – you know, the personalities of many of these foreign players that came to Wichita, Andy Chapman, you know, this uh, kid from the East end of London, just the most charming guy you'll ever meet. And, you know, he charmed the, the uh, pants off of many fans, literally and figuratively here in Wichita. And, um, and people like, uh, you know, Eric Rasmussen, who's uh, and the, and the rest of the Danes, Jurgen Christensen, who you know came in and were just spectacular talents, and Chico Borja, you know, was just beloved, and so people really embraced this as Wichita's, you know, opportunity to compete against the largest cities in the country and appear in sports pages all over this country. You know, Wichita versus you know um, the New York Arrows or the LA Lasers or the Dallas sidekicks or whatever it may be, um, this opportunity, you know, for a small city like Wichita, which, you know, at the time in the eighties was, you know, 250,000 people. Um, this is not something that is, uh, that the people here took lightly. And so, and because the wings were in the community, every, like, have they visited every, they visited my elementary school. Uh, they visited, you know, every elementary school in the city. Um, and just were these Pied Pipers for soccer. And, um, you know, that really made um, it's very special here in town. And you could meet these guys and you could go out and see them at the uh, at the at the bar <laughs> or, the, you know, I mean, they, they, it was a very open environment um, in the sense that they were v very available for fans, which, you know, was hard for some players to deal with because. You know, they, they weren't necessarily used to have having that kind of of having fans have that kind of access to them. But Mike Daller says, uh, you know, he'd have people come to uh, to see him at a restaurant. He'd they'd, you know, walk up to him at a table in a restaurant with his wife and and ask for an autograph. And his wife would say, uh, yes, he can give you an autograph. But would you mind letting him finish his dinner first? <laughs> you know, Um and so, uh, yeah, it was it was a big deal for the people which thought to have this this you know this this uh, major league sport here in town. How, how did Wichita get on the radar in the first place? Right, I know the MISL was relatively fledging at that time. I mean, Wichita joined the league in its second year. Remember that we have to remember mm -hmm. there were only six teams that first year. Um, how do you, how do they leap onto the radar when? People like Ed Foreman, um, Earl Foreman, excuse me, and our previous guest, Ed Tepper, co-founders of the league, were obviously hustling as much as they could to get as many major league cities and arenas into the group. How does Wichita get on their radar? And more importantly, how does Wichita make the cut? Um, Wichita, there was a guy in, <clears throat> in Wichita named Tom Marshall who had uh, arranged to bring the Dallas Tornado into Wichita for a exhibition at the Kansas Coliseum, which is where the wings would eventually play. And um, they actually had two exhibitions uh, that they did um, with NASL teams. And <clears throat> that sort of was the 
beginning of this idea of, okay, you know, maybe we can have our own team in Wichita. And so Marshall and Jackie Knapp, who recently passed away, um, they reached out to the league because uh, they had, you know, were aware of, you know, this new league was starting MISL and, um, and worked to find investors. And it was, you know, it was a difficult process, <clears throat> you know, because finding that kind of money, um, you know, was not necessarily an easy thing. And um, eventually Bob Becker, who's an oil man, um, who was uh, from here in Wichita and who had invested in other things, some films in, in Hollywood and uh, other projects, um, they hooked up with him and um, were able to convince the league. They, 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 they had the money. And so the league was like, well, you know, there's enthusiastic fan base. So they got the money. So let's give them a shot. And um, it didn't take very long for the wings to really hit it, you know, pretty big in Wichita. It wasn't immediate, but um, even though the original ownership group actually decided to back out at the end of the first season. Um, the thing that really made the wing successful was uh, they were then purchased by uh, a group that led, that was led by Frank Carney, who was one of the co-founders of pizza hut and uh, from Wichita. And um, so Frank Carney um, then brought in Bill Kitling to run the team as a GM. And uh, of course, Bill went later went on to become the commissioner of the of the major indoor soccer league in the mid '80s and mid to late '80s. And um, so, uh, you know, it was a and then it really it took off after uh, Carney took over even more than it had the first season. And and the Wings were having some success on the field as well. You know, making the playoffs multiple years in a row. And so. Um, you know, they they just took off. The the um the the arena though was also new around that time too. The the Kansas Coliseum no longer there, uh, affectionately or maybe derisively referred to as the Big Brown Barn. <laughs> um, did, that was I I only recently discovered that that arena was only that only came online in 1977, and the wings started in '79. So I I had to think that there were some dynamics there about trying to fill the fill the Coliseum with uh, with content. Yeah, it was it was um, relative. Yeah, it was pretty new arena. The Wings shared it with the Wichita Wind, which was a minor league hockey team uh, for a while, and the Wind didn't last that long. But um, and uh, you know it was nine thousand eight hundred and some uh, capacity. So you know a little small in the MISL um, comparatively to some of the other arenas, uh, but very raucous it was very loud just the acoustics of that place were very loud um and it wasn't yeah it wasn't an, uh, a beautiful building <laughs> but um it was uh it still stands but it is no longer an arena it is actually um run it's an aviation research uh, is done there um so literally there are planes in the kansas coliseum wings in the kansas coliseum again uh, this time literal wings and um but yeah that that arena was uh, a great place to watch a soccer game and um it was really loud and so it made it 
a great environment, especially when you filled it all up to the brim with screaming people in orange. The um, and we'll segue to the broader uh, project that you're into uh, in a minute. But I, I, I do for anybody who watched those games in the early years on the USA cable network, in particular, um, Al Troutwig uh, behind the mic, often with Kyle Rowe Jr., uh, previous guest on this show. Um, uh, anytime a game was coming to you from the Kansas Coliseum, you knew that it was going to be loud and boisterous. It came through on the TV set. Um, it, it did feel a little different. It felt very different, right? Especially when it was, even if it was only, you know, three quarters full, um, it was, there was an intimacy there that, um, you know, save for, you know, St. Louis steamer selling at the checker dome. It's a whole different story. It, there was definitely a vibe there of, you knew that the, the, the town, if you will, was coming out to support the team. This was different because it was the, it was major league. Like your, the book's name uh, implies make this town big. And um, the, uh, the fact that uh, it was kind of the, I think you've said this on a previous occasion, sort of a green Bay Packers sort of dynamic a la the NFL, right? Sort of the small mm-hmm. market team versus the, the big cities. And um, there is certainly a, a, an extra dynamic of fandom that comes along with that, whether you're a Wichita native or frankly in a market, maybe that didn't even have an MISL franchise, somebody you could root for pretty easily. Oh yeah. And you know, it's funny because, you know, Wichita, Kansas, the, you know, you know, let's not let's say the not the most sophisticated city in the MISL. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's the Midwest and a reputation for being that sort of Midwestern kind of thing. Uh, and yet, the the Wings play this beautiful European soccer. This this very precise, you know, um, you know, one touch, you know, passing, um, beautiful soccer. And, you know, the biggest rival is is the Steamers, who are this American team. And so every time the Steamers and the Wings played, it was this sort of, you know, these these uh, European stylish, um, you know, extremely skilled pros versus the rugged Americans who were physical. And um, and it, it really they, they both teams, especially St. Louis, played up this, you know, um, this idea of let's let's beat these foreigners, <laughs> you know, um, with their goalkeeper, of course, accepted, you know, <laughs> in in St. Louis. But uh, other than other than him, um, you know, they had a lot of uh, native St. Louis guys, and so um, that really added to the atmosphere um, in that rivalry. Was that sort of um, really contrast between between the styles of play of the wings and and the steamers and you know a few other teams that were kind of that physical so tell me how the fans of wichita gravitate to this league writ large right because this is something that's a special thing to the fans of wichita for Mm -hmm. major league reasons so by extension right they've got to be big boosters of this entire league too um, to ensure that uh, this thing goes bigger and bolder than it than it was in the first couple of years, um, I, I'm just yeah. wondering, you know, what the what this league was like in terms of people's fandom. And were they into it? Were they to be converted? Were they soccer fans? 
or was it just an event that they they had to go to? Uh, it started out as, you know, a lot of these people were not sports fans at all or especially not soccer fans. Some were fans of football and basketball, your traditional American sports and who came to the wings. But then because there was so much at stake, because this was such a big deal for Wichita, all of a sudden, you know, this fan base just develops very quickly and really cares about this because they know this is important for Wichita and they like the feeling that we're a part of something big that's national and we're not only a part of it, we're successful at it. And so you find people in Wichita who were, you know, watching a lot. A lot of people were watching the, you know, MISL game of the week on, on USA or eventually ESPN. You know, they were following the league as a whole because, you know, if you're a in New York, I mean, you've got lots of options, entertainment options. And if the arrows go away, well, you know, there's there's other things to follow. But if the wings go away, you know, this is this is a big deal for the city. And so, um, you know, there are people here, you know, who are c- collecting MISL stuff, you know, not just wing stuff. Um, you know, they became not necessarily fans of other teams, but they would watch these other teams and then you sort of became knowledgeable about the game. But, you know, there weren't very many like um, blue blood soccer people here in Wichita until the wings. I mean, there were, um, there were, you know, there were both in the Hispanic community, uh, it was a, uh, you know, a, a soccer team. Uh, it was a semi-pro team, outdoor team that played. And uh, there was a, a another a local team that that produced uh, some people that tried out for the wings, you know, but, you know, the soccer community was really small. It was, um, you know, be, but because the MISL was the vehicle for Wichita's pride and joy, it became important. And the owners like Bill Oliver, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, they, it was important to them to, own a team that was playing against the biggest cities. And when the MISL folded and the, um, you know, the wings joined the NPSL, you know, some of those owners were like, you know, I, I don't really, I'm not interested in it anymore because, you know, I'm not interested in playing Dayton, nothing against Dayton, you know, like, but it's, you know, because I mean, we're from Wichita for God's sakes, but, um, but, you know, they, they, it became less interesting to some to some of those people um, after the MISL folded. All right, what's this? OldSchoolShirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school. And it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original XFLs, plural, or the 
Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League, and on and on and on. But, hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's uh, promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at oldschoolshirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. Tell me about sort of what you've been kind of focused on doing lately, because there's there's more to this MISL story. I think you and I have traded notes, and I've certainly traded notes with a ton of folks inside and outside of the old MISL that there's, uh, uh, with a, a few exceptions, right, your movie and book, you know, the former owner of the uh, Denver Avalanche, not the Colorado Avalanche, but the Denver Avalanche uh, team in uh, for a couple of years there, and, and a few other, you know, Ed Tepper, we had a great conversation with a few other sort of nibbles and stuff. There are there's a real missing link, if you will. There's no MISL documentary. There's no definitive book on, you know, the history and the times, the, you know, the uh, the, the the narrative kind of uh, uh, approach that you took with your book for the wings for this league. And I, to me, it's surprising. I, I got a I got a note just out of the blue on on Twitter slash X about two years ago from Roger Bennett. He won half of the men in blazers. And he somehow found me and was asking, where can I find MISL footage? Because we had a couple of conversations <laughs> about some of that stuff. And I haven't heard from him since, but it is just sitting there waiting for the, you know, the ESPN 30 for 30 or better treatment. The The whole time we were making God Save the Wings, uh, the documentary film, um, we kept looking over our shoulder, expecting ESPN to come out with a 30 for 30 <laughs> about the league. Um, you know, thinking, you know, we're going to spend all these years, you know, three years working on this, and then they're going to, you know, throw a bunch of money at a, at a, a, a MISL project and, and, and come out first. I mean, maybe that's silly for us to have thought that way, but that's because we really, we knew how great of a story this was the, the league and the wings but the league in general as well and it is absolutely remarkable that in this age of 80s nostalgia that no one has made this misl movie yet um that you know no one has really written a definitive history of the misl and so i was the last several years i was working on my master's degree in journalism at the extension school at Harvard university. And I had, um, been writing about all different kinds of things. Um, and, um, I had sort of decided 
to do this, to, to get my master's because I've been sort of committing these acts of journalism, writing a book and, 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 you know, producing this documentary film. And so in my, my last class, I, which was the, the capstone class, um, I had, uh, my professor was a, a wonderful journalist named Kurt Pitzer and he, um, he, I, I was, you know, I was supposed to, I needed to produce a series of, of long form stories. And, um, I, I said, you know, what if I wrote about <laughs> the, the MISL and, uh, and the Wichita wings and, um, and remarkably he was, uh, he, he happened to be a soccer fan. So he was familiar with the MISL. Um, and, but his first question was, uh, are you sure you want to write about this? <laughs> and so um, I I wrote several stories for this this capstone. And, um, and as I was doing that, I realized, you know, I really want to make a bigger project out of this. Um, and at first, you know, I, I thought about a book and you know, I think it would be wonderful if someone were to write a, a definitive history of the MISL. Um, it's just such a huge, enormous project to really to do what we did for the Wichita Wings for the entire league is, you know, it's like a, a thousand page book. And, um, and I wasn't quite also a template, right? Maybe for others who might want to yeah. do something similar, including the league. Yeah. And, and so I, what I thought then was, you know, what I'll do instead is I'll write, um, you know, at first it was going to be a book, but then it turned into uh, a sub stack. Um, I'll write this, um, uh, you know, series of stories about the MISL, um, not trying to tell the entire story of the league. Um, but trying to take pieces of it, important pieces of it, really interesting pieces of it, and then write about those pieces and, um, you know, snippets here and there of this, you know, it was a, uh, you know, 14 year history of, of the league. There's a lot of history there to write about. And so, um, so I'm, I started this, this, uh, Substack MISL 1980s. And um, it's the story, MISL 1980s, the story of indoor soccer. And um, it's, uh, which is free um, to read. Uh, eventually I'm going to convert it to paid, but uh, right now it's it's free. And um, basically I wanted to kind of in thousand word slices, um, you know, every week, tell this story this pretty remarkable story of of the misl and um and you know not only for the people that already know about the misl but um especially the 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 first uh, several weeks of the uh substack is really designed to be read by people who don't know the league at all or very little um, because it's, it's a story that I think will appeal to soccer fans, younger soccer fans today, and just people who are interested in, you know, um, the history of cultural history and, and, uh, not just sports, but, um, of something that really was, it burned really bright 
in, in the United States for a number of years. And, um, and it's just under, it's a story that's under told. It's just, it's hard to find, you know, uh, Rich Bichette's book, Hot Winter Nights, is really one of the only, you mentioned the Denver Avalanche book. Um, that's the end of the list, <laughs> like, that I know of, of, um, other than Make This Down Big, of books that are, um, you know, focused on the MISL. Uh, do you, I don't know, do you know of any others? I, off the top of my head, no. And no. and I I could see where, you know, you want to get some of these uh, original stories sort of out there um, because clearly that could be the grist for uh, something that you could cobble together or with input from uh, from readers and maybe conduits to other people and conversations to to further have. You can kind of maybe uh, uh, wiki eyes, if you will. Uh, what is or or have crowdsourced, frankly, some of your some of the the rest of the stories that can maybe lead up to something more comprehensive, either in written or perhaps someday, God forbid, in documentary form. Yeah, and I've I've already started to um, reach out to uh, some guests, uh, writers for this Substack, um, who will you know. Uh, you know, put in a, a story here and there um, to supplement what I'm doing um, and tell these, you know, pieces of the story um, and, um, you know, not try to tell not not try to tell every story or tell the, you know, it in in complete detail. But it's a story that it deserves uh the MISL deserves creative nonfiction writing. It deserves um, feature stories. It deserves, um, you know, to be, uh, celebrated and to be digged into. And the digging process has been fascinating. And, um, and honestly, Good Seat's Still Available has been a great source for what I'm doing because, you know, Tim, you have, you know, uh, gosh, interviewed a lot of MISL figures people some people sort of more tangentially related to the MISL but others were key figures um you know Ed Tepper and um you know uh the bus and and uh, all the many different uh, figures you've interviewed from the MISL history um these you know I've I found a lot of really good material and it was able you know it, trying to take some of that source material and put it all together in one place um you know quoting um, things like that. And also then going back and, and, uh, and of course, I, I interviewing people myself as well. And, um, but it's also important to go back, um, into the, in the past and look at this, the, you know, original reporting that was done at the time. And because, you know, so much of this history of the MISL is in danger of being lost to, to the sands of time. And, um, and you know, human beings are not very reliable narrators of the past because memory is so finicky and it is not perfect. And it is, it is very important to have, you know, these, these uh, first person sources as part of that story. And then I go back and I look at some of these, um, you know, the reporting that was done at the time. And because what, you know, what we learned with the movie with God Save the Wings was oftentimes people, you know, would romanticize 
uh, or even stigmatize um, the things that happen in their memories. And we, we discovered that when, you know, uh, the sort of um, climax of, of the, of God Save the Wings is the 81 um, steamers wings uh, playoff semifinal game in St. Louis. And um, brutal and to, still raw to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Roy Turner and Kevin Keeley said uh, they didn't want to watch it. They, they didn't want to look at it again. They hadn't seen it since. And, you know, we, we were, we thought about trying to film them watching it. And they were like, no, thank you. And um, it's very painful to, for them still. But what we, what we realized was that a lot of the sort of memories of the participants were not necessarily um, directly related to the things that actually happened. There were some sort of misremembering of things. And so we, we kind of show some of that in the film and um, you know, but this is just human, you know, <laughs> human error that is just natural, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that's the, that's the danger, right. Of oral histories. Right. And, and a lot of this, since the format of this show has been from day one conversational, right. Um, the, I guess the goal isn't necessarily um, historical accuracy as much as it is uh, anecdotal uh, and uh, an unearthing of things that maybe were not in any of the literature or the history books or, you mm-hmm. know, in those uh contemporaneous reports in, in, you know, from, from newspapers and magazines at the time. And, and, you know, unwittingly, and maybe over time, uh, you get to so many conversations that they will sort of overlap and sort of create this weave where most of the facts sort of get surfaced or challenged or, or burnished right over time. And I I don't Uh know. I mean, that that implies I knew what the hell I was doing seven years ago. Well, and this, this is in no way a criticism of what you do because what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to do here is, is take, it is absolutely vital to have those anecdotes and have those first person narratives. It is absolutely, and it is the most interesting part of any piece about, um, the MISL is, you know, talking to these people about what they experienced. And so, um, you know, and, you know, you know that, uh, you know, from like moments in your, po- in your podcast, you know, from these guys who really lay, you know, lay out truths out there that, you know, maybe they might not have said 30 years ago, but like, you know, um, time both is a, an impediment in the sense that, you know, people's memories are, are faulty, but at the same time, it also brings a little honesty to the to the conversation that you might not have gotten 30 years ago when you interview these guys, and now they're willing to, you know, maybe be a little bit more candid about what happened. We discovered that with Eric Rasmussen, <laughs> in uh, as you'll as you guys will see when you read uh, the uh, Substack. I have a story. I have a, a story about Eric, um, and you know, he's extremely honest about some things that happened. And um, so you have to interweave both this, you know, original sort of reporting from that time with these narratives that are from today, you know, um, and that those things together, if you, if you leave one out and then, you know, don't do the other one, you know, you're missing out on a part of it. And so, um, you know, the, the podcast has been, has been absolutely vital for what I'm doing because it provides so much of that. Um, you know, in addition to the interviews I do myself, um, 
so yeah, it's, it is a, um, it is so important to have all those things together to really, you know, and knowing that we're never like, there's, we're never going to get to the full truth of everything. It's just not possible to do that, but you can, you could just keep, you keep trying to get closer to what, what, what we think happened. And, and, and you have differing ideas of what happened oftentimes. And so, but that's, that's just part of, uh, you know, human life. No, I appreciate that. I, and I appreciate your, your, your thoughts on, on, on sort of where we've been and maybe someday where we're going, give, give our audience a sense of some of the initial topics that you gravitated to uh, sure. that are going to be part of the Substack stuff. And, you know, maybe a little hint or two about, uh, you know, what they can expect in, in your, in your writing of those. Well, I, I am, was particularly interested in the early sort of both the conception and then the birth of the MISL. And so one of the pieces is about the 1974 um, Red Army versus uh, Philadelphia Adams game. That was kind of the, what I think, I think it is the consensus is this was the con the conception of indoor soccer as a potential league. Oh, I would, and I would go out on a limb and, and say mostly from our conversation with Ed Tepper, that yeah. is absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, sure. The NASL had tournaments prior to that indoor tournaments. And yes, there was six, you know, five aside soccer in, in Europe uh, as a mostly a training, you know, in training and in practice. And, but um, that sto story was fascinating to me and i uh, al miller was uh and and ed were my two big sources for that and they uh, in addition to i went back and i looked at all this original reporting and found by the way um some really uh cool stories um from um well peter king for instance i is is a source of some of the material and and that particular article uh the the uh, sports illustrated former sports illustrated great sports writer peter king and um you know this guy named bill lyon who was a uh, philadelphia inquirer um columnist sports columnist just has these great <laughs> it, in fact i have this quote from him that i pulled out of one of his his, his uh stories and says uh Indoor soccer, as it turns out, offers as much action as a Saturday night stroll through Central Park right after the muggers have thrown out the first body of a new season. <laughs> Which, you know, it's an example of there's this like really bright, vivacious, uh, exciting writing, you know, by some of these other journalists who um, are reporting on what's happening. And and so I like to pull that stuff out and, and bring it to uh, into, you know, what I'm writing. And um, so, yeah, the 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 uh, 1974 Red Army versus Philadelphia Adams game, which came about because of a just like random. Uh, and this was my opportunity to make a reference to Jurassic Park in, in one of my stories of the <laughs> the butterfly effect uh, um, of, you know, all of a sudden this Portuguese, you know, soccer impresario. Hap, who happens to have the contract for Red Army Moscow, you know, gets in touch with Al Miller in Philadelphia. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few years later, we have the MISL. I mean, um, and there was some great reporting 
uh, and and stories from that uh, that process of getting the Red Army team over here and and what happened. And so then I I have another um, story uh, that really delves into sort of like the okay what happened between 1974 and 1978 um, to that led to this league. So I I have a long story about. Um, you know, how the, the league, Ed Tepper and Earl Foreman sort of get started. And Doug Verb, um, who was the uh, PR director for the MISL, was, is a, a great source. Um, and I uh, he was a, you know, did a great job in your podcast. And then all, we three, all three hours and change of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's he's just such a and he was a journalist himself. We could have so, done 12 hours with that. <laughs> oh, he, he's he's a great storyteller. And he's very funny. And um, we interviewed him for the book as well. And so he was a wonderful, you know, uh, source of all this information. And um, and so we really go into all the way up through that. It, it goes up through that first game uh, with um, Pete Rose um, coming out. And uh, <laughs> and you we you know, Pete Rose had a uh, you can see why the the league really brought him out um and wanted him to talk to the media because he had this this folksy charm where he like one of his quotes he's comparing you know he's talking about how people compare uh, indoor soccer to a pinball game and he says uh hey that the pinball business is about number two in this country you can't get into them pinball parlors and uh so he's just like folksy charm that you know people love and um and so we kind of tell that story all the way up through um, that first first game of the MISL, and um, and that was a really there's just a lot to tell in that story um, about you know how this league gets started, and you know there's a couple themes that really that really reappear when I was doing the research, which is one, the MISL was really focused on. Um, American players, at least that was the marketing. Uh, that went, they wanted American players to have a shot, and I, I, and I, I asked Ed Tepper, was this just marketing, or was this? Did you really? <laughs> and and you know, I he said, yeah, we really wanted to give American players a shot, and I, I believe him. And um, of course, as it all turns out, you know, the Americanization of of the you know of this indoor soccer was um, never quite you know. Uh, happened uh, to the especially in the early years and um you know it just wasn't possible but i think they well, wanted well, it to be possible. before you go any further probably because the outdoor league was collapsing and the misl probably beyond even the wildest imaginations of of foreman and tepper was becoming the only league professionally yeah. in this country really of any sort yeah and the in the nasl was that was another theme was that you can see this very before the misl kicks off they're very like hey you know careful in, in the media about talking about you know okay we don't see ourselves as a competitor with the nasl you know we you know we we like those guys and they're they're trying to play nice because they you know of course realize that there's you know it's a scarce uh, there's the, the scarce entertainment dollar of the American public is, uh, you know, is being fought over here. And and of course, you know, the and you can see that in the press that eventually things get a little uh, testy between the leagues and, you know, it's not so friendly after a while. And, and but um, 
yeah, th there was some interesting themes that came about from that, um, that story, uh, th that, you know, those, those, those entry, the, the birth of the league. And then, um, I have a, uh, I, I really wanted to tell the story of the Dallas sidekicks championship season. Um, because after talking with Alan Balthrop, who runs, uh, kicksfan.com, is a big sell, you know, he's the sort of the, the team historian of the sidekicks. And, um, I, I thought, um, you know, this is a really interesting, interesting story, you know, partly because, um, the, the, you know, arrows, 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 soccer, soccer's, you know, I mean, the arrows and the soccer's were great, great teams, but sometimes the most interesting stories are, you know, the other part, you know, when, somebody else won, <laughs> you know, which uh, didn't happen a whole lot in the eighties in the MISL. And so that Dallas sidekicks champion season championship season was something I wanted to, I, I've, I wanted to write a story about. And, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to talk about these members of the professional underground network of uh, indoor soccer historians, the punish as they call themselves. Um, these people who, wanted to realize if I don't document the history of this MISL team, nobody is going to do it. And they set out to, you know, take on that role. And, you know, there was several of them. I focus on four of them uh, in the story and, you know, talk about what they did and why it meant so much to them. And, um, and then um, I also am, telling the story of the New York express <laughs> and uh, uh, which was a, you know, very short lived um, New York franchise that was um, not successful. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's sometimes the, the, the failure stories are some of the most interesting stories. Um, and which, the, which is why I think I've had a hard time getting Shep messing on this show. I think he's a little fearful of maybe talking too much or a little bit about the express where I would love to talk more about sort of the origination, him being the, um, I don't know, the, the, the Gordy Howe to the WHA, he, he of that of the MISL, he put the, he put the league on the map by being the first sort of major signing and, you know, all that kind of heritage and stuff. And he sort of waxes and wanes interest and not interest um, for his entire career, the outdoor stuff with Cosmos, all that kind of stuff. God forbid someday we'll get him on for just a, a good, healthy conversation because I, I think he's one of the unsung heroes. And and that New York Express ex, uh, uh, experience, right, is was a noble one, given what had happened to the, the franchise earlier and the league's desperation, frankly, to be relevant in New York City going forward as the as the decade was rolling on. Well, God bless Shep Messing for taking on that, you know, uh, trying Risk to keep. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually reached out to Shep Messing and, and I talked to him a little bit and but I haven't been able to get, get him to talk to me either. But um, and maybe he's he's just taken his time to get back to me again. But um, yeah, I, I think um, it's an interesting story. And um, and, you know, um so, uh, and there's a lot more. The laser story uh, is interesting. I'm gonna t I'm gonna tell uh, part of that story, um, and, uh, and that's actually something I, I 
I, I feel like the lasers ought to be a, uh, a, a documentary, <laughs> a, a film, um, just because of the celebrity aspect of it. And, you know, it's sort adjacent to so many interesting things. And, and, um, even though that, you know, they really struggle to get people to come to the games. Um, it's a, it's a really interesting story as you discovered, um, uh, when you did, you, you know, you had two podcasts with, um, was a uh, Weinstein and bus, right? Or Correct. We- yeah. Yeah. And we yes. still want to get Jeannie on this show too. Cause she was tangentially related to all that as well. And I, I want to, you know, I got to, I want to find out the real story about why Gabe Kaplan was uh, at the game and, and being shown on the M on, uh, on the USA cable network broadcast. And we found out that it was because <laughs> he was, he was poker buddies with, with Dr. Jerry. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. So, okay. When, um, when can we start to see, um, this Substack out there. How can people find it? Uh, people subscribe to it and all that kind of stuff. And and what do you think it uh, will will morph into over time? If you're lucky. Well, once this uh, when this episode appears, the Substack will be live. Um, so if you're listening to this now, then uh, you'll be able to go to. Um, uh, if you let's assume we're we're doing this in in a timely fashion. <laughs> so go ahead. Let's assume it's available now. Where can people go? Okay. So yeah, people can go to uh, misl1980s.substack.com. If you just Google misl1980s Substack, you'll find it. Um, and um, it's uh, if you're not familiar with Substack, it basically is a sort of email based. So um, it shows up in your inbox however often. In the case of my Substack, this is a weekly Substack. I've sort of committed myself to 1,000, 1,200 words a week. Um, and um, so every week you'll get a um, another edition of MISL 1980s Story of Indoor Soccer. Um, and I, you know, tell a lot of these stories, it's sort of telling in pieces, part one, part two, part three. Um, and um, so for busy people who, you know, uh, are not able to, you know, it's hard to digest 6,000 words, you know, sometimes uh, of a story. So um, this gets to be in, in chunks and nice little 1,000, 1,200 word chunks to people once a week. And um, it's an opportunity to learn about the league uh, for people who don't know much about it. And then uh, an opportunity for those who are sort of aficionados of the league to both reminisce and then maybe discover new nuggets about the league and, and just um, sort of marinate in this eighties wonderfulness of, of uh, the MISL, which was like a, it was um, such an, it's such an eighties story which like I said, it's just remarkable to me that it hasn't turned into um, a documentary or even a sort of um, a fictional retelling of, of, I actually know a guy who has written a very famous book, uh, not related to the MISL, who was working on a screenplay that was essentially a MISL um television series uh believe it or not um and i don't want to say who it is because uh i don't i i don't want him to uh, i don't know where he is with his project but um so uh but i i think it would be uh like it's like the what was the um 
the wrestling uh, Netflix show that was the the fictional version. Um, oh, I can't Glow? remember now. Yeah, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. Yeah, that's actually a real thing, but then it was fictionalized with Mark Maron. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that sort of thing for the MISL, I think, would be fascinating. Um, but uh, so if you're a famous uh, Hollywood um, executive with loads of cash listening to this podcast, then, you know, I'm willing to help you out with this. <laughs> so. Well, Tim, I'm I'm very much looking forward to this and um, look forward to uh, uh, obviously getting this out there and getting people uh, to subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And I look, I actually believe, too, that you'll find um hopefully some community that uh, sort of bubbles up beyond the people that you and I maybe already know or are yeah. connected to right who might come out of that proverbial woodwork god forbid with some videos that we've never seen but maybe some stories and and maybe some real you know energy that perhaps gets rekindled uh to indeed get some of these bigger projects out, uh you know from um from idea into uh, into reality and maybe you and partially me, maybe I'll be sort of the, uh, I'll be the key grip, but you could be the executive producer credit uh, <laughs> on those efforts and stuff. And then we'll see if we can enjoy together. Sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. It was my pleasure to bring that conversation with the other Tim in this uh, chat, Tim O'Brien. Thank you, kind sir, for being with us and let us uh, remind you that uh, you may get on the list right now by going to MISL 1980s 1980s MISL 1980s.substack.com and get yourself in the know to receive all of the missives that uh, Tim O'Brien will be sending with those great stories uh, and interviews and conversations around the old M-I-S-L. Uh, you can also, by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 336, and you'll find a convenient link to said Substack link. Uh, if you couldn't write that down fast enough or rewind it quick enough, uh, but you'll also uh, be uh, greeted by a few other links uh, that harken back to some of our previous episodes with Tim. One is the uh, essential History of the Wichita Wings, the book called Make This Town Big. Great read, even if you weren't uh, a fan of the wings in the MISL. It's a really good uh, primer on what was going on in the league as well as in Wichita. And uh, the movie, which is just a, a scream, uh, now on uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, and, and a few other places. I think on Apple, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that is called God Save the Wings. Um, it's also available, I believe, in the UK version of Amazon Prime as well. Uh, and you can find out more about that movie, too, by going to GodSaveTheWings.com. All right. Our website, once again, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, all of our episodes are posted there. But of course, the best place and way and manner to get uh, each week's episode of this here little show is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. We are available just about wherever you can get them. And for whatever reasons, if your podcast catcher, streamer, whatever it is, doesn't uh, pop it up there for you when you search it up uh, and you can't subscribe or follow us, let us know, please. Uh, we endeavor to make sure that we are as widely available as possible. We're on YouTube as well. You can stream us there. Uh, and of course, wherever you can rate and review us, we appreciate that. As you probably know by now, that helps the algorithm 
uh, now increasingly aided and abetted by augmented reality and uh, augmented reality uh, <laughs> AI, uh, artificial intelligence. I got to get my uh, my acronym straight and machine learning and all that stuff. Whatever the whatever the the technology gods might be doing. Do yourself, do us a favor, will you? And uh, give us some nice ratings and reviews so that we can get ensnared properly uh, into those uh, electronic gears. Uh, you can send us email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And you can follow us on various social media. We are on uh, X slash Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still, And you will find us in various other places like uh, Instagram and Threads and uh, Facebook. You will find us on those places at Good Seats Still Available. Thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you to Jerry Payne of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you for your knob twiddling, as always, kind sir. And thanks, uh, of course, for listening uh, intently and all the way through this week's episode. We'll see you next week. Uh, The appreciation is ours. Take care of yourselves.